ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week, it's ETF Shark Tank. I'll be joined here in just a moment by Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. And this is going to be fun. So we have a boatload of prospective ETF ideas to put through the gauntlet. So you may have seen this a couple of weeks ago. I was uh, playing around out on Twitter, as I've been known to do from time to time. Uh, okay, actually all the time. But I posed the following question. I said, give me one ETF that doesn't currently exist, but you wish did. And I also added the caveat, no spot Bitcoin ETF. Everyone knows that topic's been beaten into the ground. That thing is not happening right now. So no spot Bitcoin ETF. But if you followed me on Twitter for a while, you know I've done this before. I like to occasionally just get a feel for what's hot, what ETF ideas might be coming down the pike. For me, it's just a good way to sort of gauge where ETF innovation might be heading. And so in this particular tweet I sent out a couple of weeks ago, I tagged Dave. So he was on all of the responses. And I've got to say, the replies were simply amazing. We had a lot of fun with this. We received a ton of uh, very interesting ETF ideas. And so Dave and I are going to bat these around this week. I would say nobody better to do this with than Dave. And so without further ado, let's jump right into the ETF Shark Tank. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, are you a, a Shark Tank fan? Do you like to, uh, watching the show? I I have watched plenty of episodes of Shark Tank. I wouldn't say I like set a calendar for it, but I've I've watched you know Mark Cuban and Lori, what's her name, and Kevin O'Leary argue with each other about stuff for plenty of time. <laughs> you know, I used to watch the show all the time. I haven't as much recently. My oldest daughter, though, who I I do think is going to be some sort of entrepreneur at some point, she loves the show. I think I think. It's it's a masterclass in pitching. To me, that's the real value. Like the actual business ideas, whatever, right? I mean, it's another kitchen gadget or another way to clean your shoes, whatever. But I love that it is this this boiler room of 
pitching strategies, right? Which we all have to do that in the real world. A hundred percent. I think it's a great learning experience for uh, prospective entrepreneurs and, and really just getting people excited about considering building something on their own. I actually think yeah, if we had more absolutely. shows like this, we'd all be in a much better place. But um, in any event, so again, I asked everyone out on Twitter to give me an ETF that doesn't exist but they wish did. And I, I had that caveat of no spot Bitcoin ETF or else I, I think that probably would have- <laughs> Well, and then 20 people said, how about spot ETH? <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then I also did say uh, bonus points for a good ticker symbol as well. And I'm not quite sure the best way to do this. I think what I'm going to do is I'll just start rattling off uh, some of these ideas to you and then you can comment and we'll just go back and forth if that works okay. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. And before we get going here, um, I, I have to read you two tweets that we got, which I thought were perfect to help set the stage for us. And I, I wasn't sure if you saw these. The first was from at C Langiger, Chad Langiger. He said, uh, quote, careful, by the time you record the podcast, all of these ideas will already be launched into the market. <laughs> I mean, it's not, he's not wrong. <laughs> well, I, I wondered how many uh, ETF issuers were uh, snooping around in the thread, right? Um, and then well, the other answer, all of them. <laughs> yeah. And then the other yeah. tweet was from uh, Dave Abner, of course, an ETF industry OG. So his Twitter handle is at dabner. He said, quote, the number of replies on this thread is a clear answer for the saturation crowd. Plenty more to come. And of course, I like that because, you know, we always say ETFs are the uh, Silicon Valley of asset management, right? This is where some of the best ideas right. come from. And there's no shortage of those. You, you know, just when you think you've seen it all, something else comes along. I actually talked about this last week with uh, BNY Mellon's Ben Slavin. But a a any quick uh, comments on either of those tweets before we get uh, going here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's true. I, it's worth pointing out that the, the, the flood has slowed down a little bit. Where I don't think we're at, like peak launch cycle because we've had some down market and that tends to dampen some of the enthusiasm. But boy, it doesn't seem like a week goes by where there's not 20 new ideas. So it's 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 very much the real world. All right. So to get us rolling, we're going to jump right in here. I want to start with this idea of city or state ETFs. There were several people yeah. responded with this idea in one form or another. So for example, an ETF that owns public companies in uh, Pennsylvania or Maine or Minnesota, or even in a city like Chicago or Boston. And I'll tell you, I flagged this idea because, as I'm sure you're aware, an uh, issuer actually filed for a Texas ETF a few weeks ago, Texas Capital Bank, and uh, Ed Rosenberg, yep. who's an ETF industry veteran. Now, uh, you know, that, that tells you this idea has been tried, right? Or it's being tried now. It's been tried before. We had the uh, the Nashville ETF that didn't. Yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah. I didn't realize that. There were uh, Texas and Oklahoma ETFs back in the day that closed up shop. So I can't say this is the most innovative idea on, on the list we'll go through today. But again, we got several responses along these lines. So to start, what do you think about this concept overall? So there's the, the reason it's a great idea is because there are, in fact, classes of investors for whom not only would this be a good idea, but it might be a mandated idea, right? If you're, I'm making this up, if you're a, a Texas pension somewhere, it is not inconceivable that you might have in your mandate that X percent of the investment needs to go into uh, Texas founded or Texas domiciled enterprises, or that the the company or the pension have a certain percentage of assets that they should seek to invest locally in the economy. So that is not that uncommon in pensions and endowments. Um, so it seems like a really logical thing. Aha, we'll make a Texas ETF and we'll attract all of this money that has nowhere else to go. The challenge is multiple. One, the biggest one is that really you're limiting yourself to such a narrow pool of investments. Um, I mean, I think this was the, the big issue in like Nash and Ook. Um, yeah, you could get Cracker Barrel, a couple other companies, but companies that might be large employers in a state aren't necessarily domiciled there. They're often domiciled in Delaware or somewhere else. So how you define domicile and headquarters and things like that is actually quite tricky. Um, and, and I think what people are really trying to do is keep money in their locality, which again, I think is a, a perfectly reasonable thing for folks to do. But using headquarters, where companies are listed, um, where their employment bases are, 
really problematic. I mean, in many parts of the South, Toyota is one of the largest employers, but you're not going to put Toyota in your Oklahoma ETF or your Georgia ETF. So I, I think there's problems with implementation here. Uh, the other the other reality is that most of those pools of assets that you would be targeting are already doing this and they're doing it through private uh, you know, consultants who are helping them make individual investments or through a pool of assets that they've hired an asset manager to make those local investments for them. Um, and that's tough to compete against and certainly tough to compete against on cost. I think you and I are on the same page and I would agree with many of your points. I'm just not a huge fan of this idea um, overall because to what you were saying, I think A, it seems too granular, too niche. And I, I just question the uh, overall investment thesis of state yeah. or city outperformance just as a whole. And then- Yeah, that, from, a, from, a, from an investment perspective, this doesn't actually make any sense unless you have some sort of mandate. I can, there is no viable reason why you would expect any individual state to have a pattern of returns that is exploitable in any way. Yeah, and I'll give you two other things here too, which again, I think align with what you were saying. I mean, one, I think most investors are already gonna own these companies anyways if they own broad-based yeah. ETFs. Uh, and then I'll, I'll give you, this is, I guess, kind of along the lines of unless you have a real sense of state patriotism or you're forced uh, as a pension to invest in something like this, just think about like if you're an advisor um, in New York, let's say, are you really gonna tell your clients, hey, I love New York. We all live here, but we're going to invest your money in Texas. That that just seems like a uh, a tough sell to me, especially if you don't have. Uh... Well, that that might actually be the only case I could come up with where it's positive, because at least there you're creating some sort of lifestyle diversification, right? I mean, I think people sometimes get overloaded in their local exposure. Certainly, talk to people who have invested in Manhattan real estate, who have jobs in Manhattan. Uh, who spend all of their time and money in Manhattan, they probably don't want to buy the New York ETF. They'd probably rather buy the Texas or California ETF. But again, I don't think we're heading for a world where we're going to have a 50-state list of these things. Yeah, and I'm just saying if you're like a typical advisor where you have a broad-based, diversified portfolio, whatever that looks like, and let's say you are based in New York, adding a line item for a Texas ETF. just Yeah, yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, by, by the way, later, um, I actually want to go through some other ideas we received where uh, similar to the city or state ETFs, they have previously existed, but then closed. And we can do a little rapid fire on those and whether or not you yep. think they should have closed. Um, okay, next idea for you. This is from uh, Will Hershey over at Roundhill. So he suggested an S&P 499 ETF that would exclude the car company, which I, I'm assuming he's obviously referring Tesla. to Tesla, right? Um, and, and by the way, I can't rule out that this is something Roundhill might actually be cooking up. <laughs> those guys, those guys, they, now that they're doing these sort of micro, I don't know, what are they calling them? Micro, I call them micro sector swap based products. They can do anything, right? If you can get one of those things out, you can pretty much put any pattern of returns you want. You'll get a swap counterpart or you run it for you. So they could. For sure. Okay. So here's the way I'll tee this one up for you. Look, we do have single stock ETFs. And so as I thought about this idea, it's sort of like flipping that on its head and having diversified ETFs that exclude a single stock or maybe even a handful of stocks. So do do you see any uh, good use case here? This is the great use case for direct indexing. I mean, this is basically what direct indexing solves for most people. Usually the reason people want to do this, and this, this 499, the S&P 499 or 500 minus one, I've been hearing about this idea on conference stages for 20 years. So this is not a brand new idea. Usually it's because an advisor has a high net worth or more likely an ultra high net worth client who has massive exposure to a single company because they're the CEO or they've worked there forever and have options and deferred comp, et cetera, et cetera. And for them, they really don't want to then go buy more of that stock because they buy the S&P 500 or total market fund. So this minus one, right, this X one company thing is usually highly personal personalized for a very specific tax and exposure reason. And for that reason, that's why direct indexing shows up and makes that a really easy solve. Um, I don't think there's much of a market for a 499 um, that w you could all agree that the one we're kicking out is Tesla or we're all going to agree we're kicking out Amazon. Um, I think it's too idiosyncratic. Um, and, and, and frankly, if you're really trying to do this, I think you can do it just simply by shorting out something that you don't want. Now, again, the reason why direct indexing is better than doing that is because 
if you're the CEO of XYZ, you probably don't want to have to file that you shorted XYZ. That would be bad, right? So that's why direct indexing gets you out of jail free on this thing. So uh, interesting idea, a genuine investment need, but probably the wrong wrapper. Once again, I agree. We don't have any uh, debate in the Shark Tank just yet. And, you know, what's funny here is, you know, I'm not the biggest bull on uh, direct indexing overall, but this is absolutely the perfect use case for direct. It's the the big use case. Yeah, this and tax loss. You use it. So, um, okay. I mentioned uh, Roundhill. There was another ETF idea we received that actually made me think of them. And uh, they're uh, big ETFs that they've launched this year, which offer highly concentrated exposure to areas like banks and, and big tech. They have some other ones coming down the, uh, the pike, but they use swaps to get exposure in addition to owning the underlying stocks just to get around diversification rules. So the idea was an ETF that holds the top 10 weighted stocks in the S&P 500 with a 10% allocation to each rebalanced as the top 10 changes over time. And I thought, if you believe those top 10 holdings drive returns, which some investors would argue is the case. And you look at how top heavy the S&P 500 currently is, this could be an interesting ETF to either go long or short, right? And by the yeah, way, this idea I, was from uh, at Carrie Peter Green. But uh, yeah, yeah. So any thoughts? I mean, is this sort of like a more concentrated mega cap ETF? Yeah, I, it is. And I actually think this is an interesting pairs idea, right? If you took the top 10 and you put that in one of these funds, I'm not so sure about equal weighting because now you're creating a bunch of sort of accidental rebalance timing luck. Um, so I'm not totally sure about that. But the idea of taking the top 10 and carving that out and then having the other 490 as sort of the counter to it and having long and short versions of both of them. I could see how that is an interesting mathematical exercise and how you might actually extract some interesting signal from it. Um, I, th it's the kind of thing I want somebody like a Wes Gray or a Corey Hofstein to jump into and, uh, and run the numbers on because I suspect uh, that top 10 portfolio has probably done exceptionally well in the last decade uh, because we know that we've been an increasingly concentrated top 10 market. Um, and that we also know right now, certainly the, what, what little rallies we've seen off and on this year have really come from the top of the food chain. So I, I, I get why it's an interesting idea now. Um, you know, the implementation is a little tricky. I think doing it on a rebalance basis, you know, I might do something like, a, you know, let it run and reset quarterly, do a full reconstitution and reset weights to equal weight or something like that. Um, that I think might create a little bit more uh, palatable pattern of returns. Um, you know, you don't want to create a situation where you're constantly rebalancing this thing because you'd be booking a lot of capital gains that I'm not sure you're going to wash out. I like the uh, shout to Newfound Research's Corey Hofstein on the rebalance timing luck, which if anybody hasn't read his uh, research on that, it's must read. Uh, but I, you know what I like about this ETF is that, or this perspective ETF is that it could be used again to go both long and short. And so I think you yeah. can see a market develop around both sides, which makes it interesting. And this is actually something I could see an issuer like uh, Roundhill contemplating. Uh, by the way, I thought I'd mentioned to you. Uh, so Octay Kavrock, who is over at Leverage Shares, and I've had him on the podcast, he suggested an ETF that would go long the bottom 490 holdings in the S&P 500, and then short, short the, the top, top 10. 10. Yeah. I, so somewhat similar there, right? Yeah, I think I think the way you do it is with a pair, right? So I, I, I think you'd be a little silly to launch the top 10 and not launch the 490, because clearly you're going to trade the two against each other. You know, I think you could probably just launch them both long with a quarterly rebalance and the short market would show up. I don't think you have to get clever and do an inverse version. Okay, so as I look at the uh, the list of ideas that I have written down here, I think we're going to get into a run of what I'll call fun or creative uh, perspective ETF. So I'll, I'll start with this one. And this would actually probably have to be a, uh, a concentrated ETF as well. This came from at Stranger Capital, an ETF of stocks who have stadiums named after them. So companies that have stadiums named after them. And he said just so he could short that ETF. And what's funny about that is if you look historically, that, that's actually probably been a pretty good investment thesis. And it definitely would have worked well last year with some of the, uh, the, the crypto companies imploding. But what do you think about that one? I mean, this isn't this basically fans, F-A-N-Z? I mean, isn't that the whole point is that these are people who are big sponsors of pro sports? I mean, it's called the pro sports sponsors ETF, right? 
Um, like so, like I think I think we already got that one. Um, and it's fans, uh, and and I don't think it's been particularly a barn burner. So I'm with you. Yeah, I think this is a fun idea. Um, I think when did when did fans fans closed right like three years ago, twenty like before the pandemic? I think I jumped the um, gun gun but, here. This should have been on my uh, my closed ETFs. That <laughs> no, it's okay. But like, I yeah, forgot I, about fans. I, um, okay, let me give you another fun idea uh, here then, and then we can get into some more serious ones. But. This was from our uh, our good friend Eric Balchunas over at Bloomberg. He suggested animal shares, which honestly, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if he was being serious with this or not. I, I actually think he might have been. but I think he actually is. Yeah, so let me describe these. These are uh, ETFs that would be a series of highly concentrated active strategies based on random selection conducted by different types of animals. So he specifically mentioned <laughs> dolphins, uh, monkeys, and dogs. And then, he, I don't know if you saw this, he expanded on this by saying uh, investors could get access to a live stream each quarter to watch the animals pick the stocks. And The octopus is trading. The octopus is trading. Quick. Did you see some of the ticker symbols? So there was a wild. These were uh, suggested by uh, you know some other users. Wild and then Darwin, which I thought was pretty good. DR. Darwin's really good. But you know what, Dave? This actually reminded me of, I, I think it might have been from... Uh, uh, Meb Faber over at Cambria, the dart ETF, right? Where you would throw darts at a newspaper yeah. or whatever to pick stocks and then package that up into an ETF. But what, what do you think about animal shares? <laughs> well, the biggest problem is everybody's going to assume it's a pet care ETF, which we already have as pause from pro shares, right? So, um, you know, the, aside from that, I love the, t I love the name of the company, animal shares. So somebody's going to have to do that. Obviously nobody's going to ever buy these products. Um, but this is one of those things where I think you could actually make a lot of hay as a marketer for something else. Not that you put it necessarily in an ETF wrapper, but if you actually set up the, you know, I don't know, the puppy pen and the octopus tank and the, the monkey cage, whatever, however it is you set this up and set it up with live streams. But what you were really doing was, I don't know, marketing think or swim or something like that. I could see it being a very successful marketing campaign, but I'm not going to get behind it as an investment thesis. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, in, in all seriousness, are you surprised that someone hasn't tried uh, some iteration of the DART ETF? You know, this idea, think, think about like Burton Malkiel. And well, yeah, of course, because nobody's really going to put big money behind it, right? That's the kind of thing that at, at most somebody is going to buy $1,000 of it so they have it in their Robinhood list so they can show it across the table at somebody as a bit of a gag. No actual human being is going to put a significant portion of their wealth into a random number generator. They're really just not. I think I want to see that exist just to see what the performance would look like. And of course, be pretty interesting, right? If this thing outperformed most active managers or whatever. Um, Critical minerals like lithium, copper, uranium, and nickel are in high demand and short supply, but they're critical to the accelerating transition to cleaner energy. Find out how Sprott's suite of energy transition ETFs can help you access a potentially powerful opportunity. Visit SprottETFs.com to learn more. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Asset allocation or diversification does not guarantee investment returns and does not eliminate the risk of loss. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein from Sprott Asset Management USA Inc., Sprott Asset Management LP, Sprott Inc., or any other spot entity or affiliate. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of writing. Still, no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. The information provided is general in nature and is provided with the understanding that it may not be relied upon as nor considered to be the rendering of tax, legal, accounting, or professional advice. Listeners should consult their own accountants and or lawyers for advice on their specific circumstances before taking any action. Okay, I lied. I actually just saw another fun idea that I have to ask you about just because, I, I, I don't know, I feel like this had to have been your favorite if I know you well enough, at least in terms of a fun idea. So this was from uh, Bruno DeSosa over at Hashdex. His Twitter handle is at BRS Hashdecks. He suggested, listen to this, ticker symbol Jedi, which this would hold companies that would perform well in our resistance to an alien invasion. <laughs> uh, do you think the, uh, the, 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 the stock universe is big enough here? I, I, I guess pun intended there with the universe. Yeah, the, the, the challenge here, this is a little bit like um, some of what you hear from Bitcoin maximalists who 
uh, who, when you listen to them, sound like they're rooting for the end of the world. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, one of the the old sayings is when the bombs are falling is when you buy because what's your alternative, right? And I think that I, I think that this is true for an alien invasion. If 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 we're actually looking at an alien invasion, just buy everything because what's the alternative, right? I mean, there's only really two outcomes: either it's beneficial or it's not. If it's not, it doesn't matter what you're invested in because money is not going to matter. And if it is, it's probably a rising tides thing. And so you might as well just be all in on the S&P 500 with leverage. I'm not sure I can figure out which sector of the economy you think is going to perform well during an alien invasion, except, I don't know, maybe media companies. <laughs> Good point. I think if uh, that was actually occurring, I would just say, don't buy anything. Like, take your money, do whatever you want, have fun, and, and just assume the end of the world is uh, is near. Yeah, that's true. That's the alternative to buy everything is just spend everything. Yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, let's get into a few more uh, robust ETF ideas, at least investment-wise. And so one of my favorite follows out on Twitter is uh, Economic uh, Jake. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm sure you saw this. He suggested an ETF that is 60% non-dividend-paying stocks and 40% BOXX. That's the uh, Alpha Architect one- to three-month box ETF. And the idea here is that uh, this ETF wouldn't kick off taxable income for 60-40 exposure. The ticker would be NOTX, as in no tax. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, what, what, what do you think about that idea? And, and maybe do you want to explain what a box spread is, by the way, if you're able to do Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, we can. So a box spread is an options trading strategy where you're buying four different options contracts at the same time, the same expiration, but different strike prices. Um, so like it, it, the idea is you're trying to extract mispricing from the market. I, I don't want to get too down into the weeds on this. The, the reason I'm against this is precisely because it would take me three paragraphs to explain why you really use the box spread on anything, which is why I don't think you're going to see a product like this or frankly, even BOXX. Um, like take the world by storm. Uh, I will say if, you know, if anybody was going to launch this product, it would probably be our friends over at Simplify, right? I mean, they're, <laughs> get, take a complex option strategy and, and bolt it onto an existing asset class. That's sort of their game. Uh, and so I, I think that that's probably where you end up. I, you know, I, I, the other issue here, and, and I'm going to broaden this out a little bit, is the idea of doing some sort of uh, asset allocation strategy, which I would put this in, right? I mean, it's a weird one, but it's, it is kind of an asset allocation strategy. History would suggest these do terribly in an ETF wrapper. Uh, people don't really want to use the ETF wrapper to roll up multiple things. Now, there are some exceptions to that, and options have been one of those places like buffered funds, some of those simplified products. People do take these more complex strategies and roll them in. Um, but, but the idea of like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a fan. I think that it gets too complicated for anybody to really use. And anybody who's sophisticated enough to really appreciate it can probably roll their own. I think that's a good point. And you may have seen uh, Tariq Dennison. So he's at Quantavasia. And he always gives us some great ideas when I, uh, when I put that tweet out there. But he suggested target date funds where the equity is 100% small value and the fixed income is a, a bond ladder, guaranteeing a defined amount of income per share after retirement date. And I think to what you were saying, I think you actually responded uh, along these lines that nobody is buying target date ETFs. And yeah. it's interesting. I spoke- They don't exist right now. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah, those don't. But but I put those in the same category as asset allocation ETFs. Yeah. What's interesting 100%. though, Dave, is I spoke last week with Avantis's Phil McInnes. And you know they have, I think it's AVGE. I don't have the ticker in front of me. I think that's correct which is, uh, it, you know, it packages up uh, U.S. equities. But they're, if you look, they have four filings out there with the SEC for additional ETFs, one of which is a moderate allocation ETF. And in speaking with him, and Avantis, as you know, his, you know, they've been a massive success so far, over $21 billion in assets. They're bullish on this structure. And I, I did ask Phil, I'm like, well, what about this advisor concern about just having a single line item on a statement? They don't want that. He said they've had conversations with advisors and, uh, you know, an advisor who has a value prop outside of just portfolio management, or maybe they just want to, say, allocate to international equities in one ETF and be done with it. He thinks there's enough of a use case there. And that AVGE, I believe, has over $150 million in assets. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm more along uh, yeah, your I, lines. Yeah, I mean, there are a handful of these that have survived. I mean, iShares is the only one that really has these sort of allocation ETFs, a live AOM, AOR. I think they all have... 
a billion or two in them. So they're not they're not horrible failures and they're not going to they're not in danger of being shut down. Um, but I think it's reasonable to ask how big a market is there for a moderate allocation ETF, which basically supplants a model portfolio and creates a single line item for an advisor. I is there a use case? Yes, I think it's largely a retail use case, and it's a narrow retail use case. So maybe Avantis has the brand recognition to pull it off, and maybe there's a class of advisors they've identified. I'm very skeptical. By the way, going back to uh, the the box spread and, and the ETF BOXX, first of all, I think that ETF's doing pretty well uh, in terms of assets so far. But you know the way how I describe this, and I've had Wes Gray on the podcast before. He tried to explain this, and my head was spinning. Uh, but it's like a synthetic treasury yield. And, and you actually, the way this thing's designed, you get a few bips above whatever the, uh, the, the you know treasuries are currently yielding, but you know more tax efficient synthetic treasury yield. So take that for, for what it's worth. Yeah, I, I mean that's what it is. It's a synthetic yield strategy that's trying to exploit opportunities in the in the you know implied volatility. I, I get what it's doing, um, and I get that there are places where it should exist. I just don't think it's a mainstream idea. Um, okay, next I have uh, an idea from Bloomberg's Henry Jim at ETF Hearsay. Great follow, by the way, if you like Great follow. tracking uh, new filing. So he suggested a leveraged high-yield bond ETF, he said, for obscene yields. And he said not daily performance leverage, but actually borrowing, so like a, uh, a margin-type account. His ticker symbols, which I thought were pretty good, would either be trash, T-R-S-H, or J-N-K-Y, junkie. He did say he'll settle for leveraged government bonds if more uh, palatable from a regulatory perspective. And the tickers he gave on those were J-Bill and GAC, G-A-C-K. Uh, any thoughts on on those? Uh, you know, we haven't had a ton of interest in leveraged fixed income. There are a handful of them out there that have, uh, you know, some decent assets there. TMF from Direction is, the I think, the 20-year 3X bull that's got a billion or two in it. Um, so there's some interest in in the leverage bond space. Um, we do have the what is it the UJ type 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 um, UJB, which is ProShares Ultra High Yield 2X, right? So that 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 exists. Which I know he's talking specifically about not doing this in the daily leverage format. But if that fund can only get five million bucks in it and it's been around for a decade, which I think is about how long it's been around. I, I'm skeptical that there's a big market for folks who are trying to take even more risk in the credit part of the spectrum. Um, in fact, if, when I talk to most advisors right now, they're actually really very skeptical of credit at the moment um, to the point where, like, if you look at folks like Eric uh, Beagleisen at Three Edge, uh, you know, their models right now are entirely treasuries, right? So they're not even playing in the credit spec space. So I get, I get the idea. It's kind of fun. Um, the idea of doing direct borrow to do this means that you're almost inevitably in an actively managed format. Um, it's tough to get a lot of borrowing in a straight up 40 act structure. This is why you usually end up having to go to the Caymans or you end up having to use swap counterparties. So cool idea. I think you run into real limits very quickly in implementation. Yeah, this is one where if it came into the shark tank, um, I would say come back later, you know, better timing to exactly what you're saying. I don't think yeah, yeah. advisors and, and investors are looking to take on uh, corporate credit risk right now, especially if you get into a recession, potentially a, a deep recession. So interesting idea, probably the, the, the wrong timing. Let me give you one more on the, uh, on the bond side. This is from uh, Andrew Stu uh, Stewart at Grocking Finance. So he suggested an active defined maturity bond ETF suite with a go anywhere mandate. So I'm thinking like uh, bullet shares plus, right? What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I you know, interesting. Um, I, I think it's a it's it's a slightly weird one because, you know, if you're if you're going to give yourself a tight maturity, like we will always have a maturity of ten years, and you're managing it on maturity, what you've done is create an enormous churn machine because every single day you're selling something and buying something new. This is part of the reason why people are always surprised when they look at like where ETFs have actually had to pay capital gains taxes. It's almost always in very tight maturity indexed bond ETFs, like Vanguard bond ETFs have had to pay out capital gains because of this problem, which is if it's Tuesday and something has fallen under your threshold and is now nine years and 11 months and however many days and not tenure anymore, you are a forced seller. 
And being a forced seller is never great in any market, but it's particularly not great when you're really trying to manage your taxes. Uh, I, I think the it, it's a clever idea. I think the implementation, again, is very tough. I 100% agree. I just thought, again, great idea, but this could become unwieldy trying to manage this thing on the, on the back end. Um, yep. Okay, let me give you one more serious ETF idea here. This is from a Twitter handle, at King of Sardonic, uh, who he suggested several physical metals ETF. So a physical uranium ETF, at least one that's listed in the U.S. Ticker symbol, good ticker, would be Nuke. Uh, a physical yep. lithium ETF, physical rare earths ETF, and a physical indium ETF. And what I thought was interesting here, I'm sure you saw, was uh, Toroso's Mike Venuto said he was working on at least one of these. Uh, something to note. But uh, are, are there any specific challenges with any of these that, that you would point out? Well, so uranium has enormous custody issues, right? So where you actually warehouse it, how the, 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 the long story short, none of these markets are actually liquid enough from a spot perspective to do a GLD style fund. Um, and the places where we do have massive amounts of liquidity, the storage costs end up being pretty large. So we looked at a bunch of these, I want to say a decade ago, and Mike actually been, might have been the one I was talking to about it a decade ago. We were looking at like aluminum and copper and like, you know, base metals that, that really get uh, that kick, kicked around a lot as well. Uh, you know, lead, uh, you know, nickel. Uh, the, the challenge is if you actually start saying, OK, well, what does a billion dollar aluminum fund look like? The answer is a warehouse the size of the Javits Center. Right. That's the problem um, is that the storage costs on these things can get really quite extensive. Part of why it works so well with gold. Right. Because a billion dollars of gold just takes up a shelf in the bank. Um, it doesn't it doesn't take up an entire building. Uh, so that's a, that's a big issue. The rare earth ones, you know, I think that's actually a, a really, really interesting place to think about. I don't, again, think we have quite the liquid the liquid spot market um, that would allow for the kind of creation redemption you would need to do in something like this. Um, that tends to be a, a market that's built on long term contracts, less on, you know, oh, I need a, need some rhodium. I'm going to the market to get it right now. All right. If you need the rhodium, it's because you're building or, you know, gallium or something. It's because you're building something on a continuous basis. So you're securing a supply line. You're not buying a box of something on the spot market. So it's a little bit different. Um, Van Eck has a product in the in the rare earth space that owns, you know, the, the miner sort of like in a, in a uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a GDX kind of way. Uh, and I think that's probably the only way to really approach that space. Yeah. You mentioned the. Uh idea for a physical copper ETF back in the day. I didn't realize that. I saw it, uh, it was Henry Jim over at Bloomberg who replied to, uh, to to one of the tweets. He said, JP Morgan and iShares tried to launch these 10 years ago. Yep. I honestly just did not remember that. But to your point, he said warehousing costs were uh, were just too expensive. By the way, did you see uh, this idea of a, uh, a weed ETF that actually holds assets? So like I'm assuming they meant a physically backed <laughs> weed ETF. Is that even viable? I, I don't know what, what what's the going rate on weed a couple hundred bucks an ounce um, I you know I, I suppose I suppose you could but there's also an aging problem I mean I'm not a super weed expert but I don't think you can just stick a pile of like bales of weed in a warehouse for years and have it still retain its value I think it is an agricultural product and so a little bit like corn uh, I don't think a physical corn ETF is going to show up anytime soon either yeah that seems like a, a warehousing challenge for sure um, <laughs> okay let's go rapid fire I'm gonna give you two more fun ideas here and I just want your quick take the first one is from a Jerry McFarlane, so at Jerry McFarlane, they said in uh, an ETF that uses satellite imaging to determine where suburban mothers are going on their shopping routes based on parking lot traffic of select cars. Large holdings would include Costco, Target, Lululemon, uh, Starbucks, Chipotle. Good ticker symbol here: Moms. M O M Z. Uh, any thoughts on that one? I know hedge funds and you know other active managers have tried to track, you know, use satellite imagery to track parking lot, uh, you know, vacancies or lack thereof for years. But any any thoughts on that? Oh yeah, I mean there, I mean do a quick Google search. There are a dozen companies that are happy to sell you augmented foot traffic data, which is what this is sort of a version of. Um, like th this is this is a well-trod piece of territory going back to all the way to the days of the Motley Fool sending people to track how many folks were showing up in the iOmega parking lot back in the 80s or in the back in the 90s, right? So um, this idea is not new. Uh, there's actually a quite robust data and analytics business built around 
not just the the foot traffic idea, like where moms are parking, but you know how trains are moving and where ships are, and like this is a big business now. If you're an active manager who's playing in the space, um, so I you know great idea. I think it is being implemented in a surprising number of shops. I think you might be surprised how many folks who have a retail analyst pays attention to this kind of stuff all the time. Um, so you know, I, cool idea. I think what this basically is is an actively managed retail fund, um, and I think that's a pretty narrow niche. The other idea I'll give you here, and we got a lot of suggestions uh, for, for this particular idea, adult toy or entertainment ETFs, which first of all, I am not giving out those tickers because we keep it clean on <laughs> ETF Prime. The other thing was I, uh, I, I did wonder a little bit who is following me on Twitter uh, with, with, with some of these, but I'm going to let you off the hook if you want. You're, you're more than welcome to speak to those ETFs uh, directly. But here, here's a question I'll ask you is how many ETF ideas um, do you think are basically DOA, dead on arrival, simply because the investment universe is too small? Or, or, or maybe a better way to ask this, Dave, is how big does an investment universe need to be to adequately, uh, adequately support an ETF? Because I think that's, that, that's really what, boi- uh, you look at a lot of these ideas, I think it does boil down to, is, is this an appropriately sized investment universe? Can you actually put, implement the idea? Well, so let me put it this way. Like I, I have a pretty good, I'm not what it used to be, but I have a pretty good knowledge of like common tickers. I can't name a publicly traded adult entertainment company. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but I'm really sure there are not a hundred of them. So, you know, if there are a handful of these things that are out there, my suspicion is they're quite small cap uh, and they're probably not well-known, highly traded names. So that begs the question, well, if you really want exposure to those handful, it's a little bit like gun manufacturers, right? If you really want exposure to gun manufacturers, there's a handful of tickers just go by them. I suppose Roundhole could roll them up into a, a you know a five stock portfolio for you just if you really wanted to trade it on an active basis. But that's the problem is like the, even the Roundhole versions of these sort of micro sectors exist only because people want to trade them, not because they're hard to invest in otherwise. There's no there's no value being applied to this portfolio of a handful of securities that adds additional alpha. It's a trading vehicle. And so that that's where I, I think the problem is. And, and a lot of these sort of narrow ideas, you end up with like, oh, yeah, there are 11 stocks. Well, at 11 stocks, you're not going to add value as a portfolio manager or as an index provider. All you're going to do is add liquidity. And so, I, I, you know, I don't think there's a hard and fast number. But, you know, if you're if you're really look, counting the number of potential uh, you know targets for your investment on two hands, I think that's too few hands. One other thing I was curious about uh, is I looked through the responses that we received. A lot of the ideas suggested, I shouldn't say a lot, there were several ideas suggested that already exist. So I, I did see multiple responses for uh, things like inverse Kramer ETFs or meme stuff, right. <laughs> quantum computing See, which, ETFs, Vice ETFs, right? And how many issuers are rolling over, going like, ah? Well, that's yeah. Like, I, I, I was wondering if those issuers uh, need to do a better job of marketing or, or something. Did that stand out to you? There were a lot of those. Yeah, and and what it speaks to again, what it speaks to is in many cases what we're talking about are pretty narrow niches. And if you're one guy with an idea, you know, how much can you really get that word out? I mean, like, let's use inverse claim Kramer as an example, because that's a fairly recent one that actually has had a decent amount of publicity. I think it's SJIM. Is that right? Slim Jim. Um, and that's from Tuttle. And, you know, that fund has attracted an audience because people think it's interesting. It hasn't had billions and billions of dollars of inflows. But how big do you think that fund can get? And therefore, how much marketing would you spend against it as an issuer? Right. I mean, they're not going to spend one hundred million dollars marketing the inverse Kramer ETF. They're going to count on the word of mouth of it being a unique niche product uh, that people think is clever as the reason people find it. They're not going to take out CNBC ads. And so I think that's where this challenge is on the niche products is, you know, they, they can be successful if they have an organic earned media hook. But if, as soon as you start spending millions of dollars getting the word out, you're probably just digging yourself a hole. Yeah. And a lot of this too goes back to, I, I see this a lot with new launches. The idea itself is very good. It's something that I think the media likes. It gets a lot of attention. But the question that you ultimately have to ask is, will investors actually allocate 
to the idea, right? I, yeah. I feel like we see that a lot where, again, wonderful idea. It's fun. It generates a lot of chatter on Twitter. But will you get, uh, you, you know, Joe Advisor in Omaha, Nebraska actually allocate into the thing? That That's the Yeah. And I think headline responsivity is the is the the test I use on a lot of niche products. Does this idea respond in a predictable fashion to certain kinds of narrative, right? So like, and that's where we end up with most thematic ETFs, right? If you want to be interested, like, I mean, Vetify has a, you know, is the index provider behind Robo and a couple of other ETFs that, that focus on AI and robotics. Those are headline responsive, meaning if there's a giant pro AI thing, they'll go up. And if the governments of everywhere in the world shuts AI down, they'll all go down, right? That's that's headline responsive. That becomes a useful investment tool because if you have a conviction about which way a narrative is going to go, you can put your money behind it. Um, you know, Kathy Wood's products, I think, all fall into that category of like, hey, there's a conviction you have to have to be here. And they will respond to the headlines the way you expect them to generally. Um, if you're in such a narrow niche that either the headlines don't matter or the securities don't move with the headlines because they've got too much else going on or they're too small or they're not traded enough, you don't really have a viable idea. Yeah, but the other thing here too is just optics. And so I'll use an example of one of the ETF ideas we've looked at today. Let's just take MOMS, M-O-M-Z, which we, we went through. And let's just assume you and I both think that's a fantastic idea. Does an advisor want a ticker symbol of moms on their client statements? And we can argue, look, advisor's job is to educate the clients, why they own it, et cetera, et cetera. But I think some advisors will just go, you know what? I, I can't have that on a statement, you know, the suburban moms ETF, because my clients are going to yeah. think I'm a clown. Yeah. Right. I just think yeah, optics I, play into that. And you have to think about that as an ETF issuer, e even if we can argue, look, advisors should be allocating to whatever they think is going to be best for the, the client and, and generate returns and all that. Optics still come into play. A hundred percent. Right. And I think that that keeps, you know, it keeps some ETFs off of sheets like buzz. Right. A cute ETF ticker can be helpful with retail. But to your point, I think it can be detrimental in, you know, in, in an advisor portfolio. And, and I and like there's some great products out there with fun tickers that I love that I think actually may be hurting themselves. Things like uh, PBJ or Moo, uh, you know, those are fun tickers for actually solid investment theses uh, and might get overlooked occasionally because of their clever tickers. All right, Dave, just a few minutes left. What I want to do is go rapid fire with some ETFs that people suggested oh, to us. That th These actually used to exist, but they've since closed. And, you know, I know I mentioned the city-state ETFs earlier, but I, I want to give you a few others that stood out to me. You can offer your quick take. I'm only giving you like 30 seconds here if you can fit it in. So, so do what you okay. can. So we'll okay. go through these quick. First one is companies with the most insider stock purchases or the greatest buy-sell ratio. And uh, I think it was Mike Venuta responded, Direction used to have an ETF. Ticker symbol was no, K-N-O-W. K-N-O-W, yeah. yeah. Any thoughts on that? Um, again, I think it's too narrow to generate significant assets. It's a completely valid strategy. Lots of hedge funds and individuals use it. It's a screen you can get out of a lot of data places. Uh, but I'm not sure there's value in rolling it up into a package. And, and history would suggest we were that's correct. All right. A fast food company's ETF. So at Michael Tannery said these would be more recession proof. And uh, again, I'm sure you saw, we received a, a number of other restaurant ETF suggestions. But again, Tarosa's Mike Venuto, who I think loved this thread, he chimed in and said, we used to have Byte. We used to have Menu. Both of those closed. He also noted Advisor Shares currently has Eats, E-A-T-Z, which that doesn't have much in the way of assets. So I guess what I would ask you on this one is why do issuers keep trying this? Because this is one where it's a subsector that makes a ton of sense, right? This is a little bit like, well, why do we have a communications ETF? It's a sector of the economy that tends to work together, that tends to respond as a group. It makes a ton of sense from an economics and academic investment perspective. And there's nobody who wants to buy them because they're seen as far too cyclical. I think that's the real answer. Um, the other big problem is is that many of those fast food brands roll up underneath Pepsi, for instance, right? They, they you're, you're getting a lot along the way. Uh, it's not like you can go buy each of your favorite individual fast food restaurants as individual tickers so you can play Subway versus, uh, you know, Chipotle. Uh, it, it's not quite that clever. 
And again, I think you also run into the optics issue on statements that we were talking about, right? If I own menu yeah. is, is an ETF. Um, okay, one more here. International sector ETF. So these were suggested by ETF Actions, Mike Akins at ETF Action. And I saw that you responded, Spider used to have this suite, which honestly, Dave, I don't even remember those. But what, what happened with those? Why, were, why do you think they didn't? No assets, right? That's really what it comes down to. Um, well, because, you know, if you think about it from a U.S. investor's perspective, we're already chronically underinvested in international to start with. If you're going to then say, well, we're going to slice and dice your DAX exposure or even just your broad domestic exposure uh, into you know, energy versus finance, how many advisors actually have an opinion about, say, developed markets finance versus U.S. finance? I think that that is a level of nuance that some institutional investors may have and may think they have an ax on. Uh, that very few U.S. advisors in particular, and definitely very few U.S. retail investors, have any real belief that they've got an ax in, right? And if you don't believe you have an edge, then why would you be using a product like this to pick and choose? So I, I think it really just comes down to this is not how much of the world thinks about slicing and dicing the market for their portfolios. Therefore, while it may be academically justified, it's not practical from an investment perspective. That all makes sense to me. My only counter to that would be, I wonder how much the market environment we've been in over the past decade plays into that, sure. right? Where Yeah, if we go through a four-year window where developed international outperforms the U.S. consistently by 5% for four years, you're going to see sector rotation strategies for domestic international, right? So like, absolutely. But right now, just trying to get investors to, to get out of their home bias a little bit is a big challenge. By the way, before I let you go, uh, did you see that Jeff Benjamin over at Investment News, he suggested a best of the ETF store ETF. You know what the ticker would be on that? Nate, which I thought <laughs> I thought that was uh, very flattering. But I I've, love it. But here's the thing, though. I've got to say that would be the most boring ETF in the world. <laughs> but here's why I bring that up. I, I thought this would be a good way to uh, close out our conversation uh, since this entire podcast did come out of Twitter. So uh, here's one last idea for you, which is related. This was from Sea Island Guy, which ticker or I'm sorry, Twitter handle is at PKJR1967. So listen to this. He suggested an inverse FinTwit favorites ETF. Ticker symbol would be AFFT, always fade FinTwit. And <laughs> Dave, I think sometimes we all take ourselves a little too seriously. Oh, gosh, 100%. I think the challenge would be trying to get FinTwit to agree on what the long is to start with so that you could short it, right? I mean, that's part of the challenge is, uh, you know, if nothing else, there's diversity of opinion on FinTwit. I don't think you can think of us being as complete group speak because I'll tell you, I could throw any ticker up right now about, I love this ETF, and I'll get 50 people who will say, you're an idiot. <laughs> and that's why we love uh, FinTwit. This, this would sort of be like a uh, an inverse social media sentiment ETF if you could figure out how to pull it off, but I agree it would be very difficult. Yeah, counter pundit. I mean, that's basically like a version of Slim Jim, right? <sighs> Dave, this was, uh, this was too much fun. We should do this every single year. Like I mentioned, mentioned earlier, I, I would guarantee you this would be our most popular podcast uh, among ETF issuers, bar none. <laughs> but uh, thank <laughs> you so much for, uh, for joining me this week. This was fun. Well, well thanks, thanks for organizing Twitter for it. <laughs> that was Dave Nuttig, financial futurist at Vetify. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Motley Fool Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Motley Fool Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by Leo Wald, CEO of Valkyrie. We are going to get into all things crypto and crypto ETF related. She knows the space inside and out, so you know I can't wait for that. Until then... Have a great week, everyone.